Okay, this is Dr. Steve Hodges. Um, I guess this is podcast number four, and we're very um, fortunate to have Dr. Mark Levitt from uh, Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus with us. Who, um, Dr. Levitt, welcome. Hope you're doing okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Um, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but you are the reason um, that I do my research because I came to your cloaco extrophy course in Cincinnati at the time where I was struggling with some uh, issues in kids and um, with just dysfunctional elimination. And you gave me the idea to get x-rays every day, and that changed everything I do. So I appreciate that. I'm really happy to hear that. I think if we don't get it, if you don't get an x-ray, you can't really check your work. You can't see if you did a good job. And the x-ray is the is the decider, essentially, between which direction to go with the next plan. So that's why we like to do it. And, you know, what What I think, the, the one area, you know, I'm a urologist by training, and so what I think a little bit of the disconnect is with the general surgery or the GI fields is the the amount of clean-out that you need to maintain your level of continence is is a little bit less. Um, I'm not, okay, so if you have it, like the complicated and perforate anus and so forth, they need to be really cleaned out. But for encopresis and so forth, the amount of clean-out you need is not as much as you need in the patient's eye see to get them dry at night. And so what I'm seeing, and I do think this is a, a genetic polymorphism where it's very independent, uh, like some kids can be backed up and not have bladder sensitivity to that. But the kids that are sensitive to rectal dilation, even minimal rectal dilation will present as bedwetting. And then as that progresses, they will have more uh, daytime bladder overactivity and then eventually in our typical patient, encopresis. And then to get them empty all the way to bedwetting is so much work. Like we can use the enemas to get them dry from um, encopresis pretty regularly and then even daytime accidents. But the bedwetting, I mean, you need to get the colon, the rectum down to basically its original size, and it's very difficult. Um, no, I don't, I, I don't think that's necessary. I think in those patients, some stool in the colon is perfectly normal. If you did a x-ray on a random 100 people walking around, out, in the, out on the streets, they would have stool in their colon and they would be perfectly fine. I think in those patients, the major thing you want to avoid is a rectal impaction because I think that has that can have effect on the bladder. So as long as the rectum does not have impacted stool in it, I think you're fine. And even that is, uh, so we'll have case, so I don't have the setup that you have where you, you have the whole um, program where people come in and they you know get the enema and get checked every day. I, I don't have that at Wake. I've tried to set it up, but we haven't made progress on that yet. So I'm doing this remotely with a lot of people. And so what I'm doing basically is sending them home on some kind of modified version of your NRI protocol, and then I'll get an X-ray at a certain interval, you know, some some weeks out. Yeah. And more often than not, when they've not made progress with their bladder symptoms, their X-ray is unchanged. And then I'm I'm kicking myself because we wasted a month or whatever doing something that didn't work. So. You're checking in real time, right, to make sure that they're getting empty the day you see them. 100%. We we come up with some regimen, and then we check an x-ray very soon thereafter and see if the regimen that we did, that we employed, works. And based on their, you know, how, how productive was the regimen and what does the x-ray look like. And if the x-ray looks like it has too much stool and they're having accidents or they don't feel that they adequately emptied, then we have to bump up the 
regimen to make them empty better. Until the x-ray looks good, we're not satisfied. But again, in, in, in that particular patient population that you're talking about, I don't think the colon has to be, you know, completely clean of stool. I think there is some stool that can be retained, but the most important thing is do they go 24 hours with an, are they successfully emptying their colon every 24 hours? Are they not having accidents in between each regimen, which is given every 24 hours? So in the case of an enema, they give the enema, let's say at night, they should be have a productive enema, have some stool come out, and then basically not produce any stool for 24 hours until the next enema comes along and a couple of x-rays in a row show that the stool is not accumulating. If you're on a laxative regimen, likewise, you kick the colon to empty stool with a certain dose of laxative. They have one or two well-formed stools. They are controlled. Uh, they don't have accidents. And then the next x-ray looks like they successfully clean the colon and a few x-rays in a row demonstrate that the colon is not accumulating stool. Okay, so just to, I guess from the urology perspective, just to tie in from what we see, and I and, and for all the ankylpredics that I've ever seen, you're 100% right, and that works every time, at least when you get when you get the right formula. Um, but it, in, in our studies, and then what, I guess, Shauna Regan, who is this nephrologist that you may or may not have heard of, that looked into this in the 80s, if you did a anal rectal manometry and had any delayed sensation to uh, balloon encephalation, so if they felt the balloon past what would be typical for their age or size, I guess it's 50 centimeters or whatever of water, but then they had um, uninhibited bladder contractions on on um, urodynamics and they had bedwetting. And so I do think um, even getting them empty in our population is it's great. But if they if they if they fill again and if that if the rectal tone is not restored, then there is some neurologic uh, input to the bladder that causes uh, uninhibited contractions, and that's what we struggle with, you know. Because if I if I get, I'm sorry, go ahead. I'm gonna say what, what, what you're describing with regard to the anal reflex is something very important. If the patient is not responding very red, readily to either laxatives or enemas. You need to be suspicious that there might be an anal sphincter problem. And for those patients, an anal manometry would be uh, an important test. And based on that, you may find the occasional patient has what I would call internal sphincter achalasia, which is a hypertonicity, a failure of relaxation of the sphincter, of the smooth muscle. And those patients need um, Botox. And we give Botox into the anal canal and then the sphincters relax better and the patient is is more able to overcome and empty their colon, even with lower doses of laxatives. So it's an important adjunct to care in the patient with functional constipation. So that's that's like basically a, a, a – if there was zero response, that would be Hirschsprung's, right, and you would treat that. But this is a, basically a, a, a decreased response to the dilation? Yeah, but but internal sphincter achalasia and the sphincter response of a Hirschsprung's patient are identical. Yeah. Okay. How do you and so do you have to biopsy them to prove that? Yes. Yes. You have to biopsy. In a Hirschsprung's patient, there's no ganglion cells. They need surgery. In a non-Hirschsprung's patient, they just need to do a better job with their pelvic floor. Botox is extremely helpful, and biofeedback is very helpful. 
So what I've run into though is um, see what your thoughts are on this is that you know the, the, let's say the pelvic floor. So the internal sphincter, I I can't comment that that's out of my expertise, and so that's a new one for me, and that's something I need to explore. But for the external sphincter, we do have physical therapy and so forth. But what I find is that it's almost like there's like um, uh, the, the dilation of the rectum is so so severe that there is no tone and there's no squeeze. So it's a combination of poor relaxation plus no squeeze. And it's almost to me like from my from my background, it's like a atonic bladder and someone that re- got in re- urinary retention. And so how do you restore that that tone in something short of surgery um, in these children? I think that's, I think that's a good that's a good comparison. I think once you get them on a regimen that um, reliably empties them, and sometimes that requires a mechanical regimen with enemas, that we do see that the tone improves and the dilation improves over time. Um, um, I, I do think it's worth knowing whether the smooth muscle sphincter is abnormal and the skeletal muscle, if it's abnormal, then that's a behavioral problem where the child is over-squeezing their, their um, um, external sphincter, which they have control over, and that's called withholding behavior, and Botox helps those patients as well. So I have, I have Botox to bladder a lot um, and for erectile bladder, and I've had good success. And, you know, interestingly and paradoxically, there's been some improvement in defecation, and I can't explain that. But I have not done Botox, and I, I don't think anyone in GI has done that in the anal canal. So can you tell us about your experience with that, how long you've been doing that for, and the success you've seen? Yeah, many, many years. Uh, if, if the anorectal manometry shows either internal sphincter achalasia, i.e. the smooth muscle, or the anorectal manometry shows over-squeezing or withholding behavior of the external sphincter. In both cases, um, Botox works, and, and in the external sphincter case, uh, biofeedback works particularly well because you need to train them to use the muscles appropriately. Um, so um, it's an important adjunct, I think, because you can hammer them with as much laxatives as you want, um, and they may not empty, and here you are improving the sphincters, and then the colon behaves itself. So you have to recognize that the two problems you could have is one, the colon doesn't empty, or two, the sphincters don't function well, and of course, patients can have both. But you can't only treat the colon, because if you only treat the colon and you have an outlet problem in the sphincters, then you won't overcome those sphincters. And obviously, you don't treat the sphincters if the sphincters are normal. You might have a colonic motility problem. So for these complex patients, we usually empirically treat them with laxatives or enemas, but for the ones that don't succeed, we call those medically unmanageable patients. They need an evaluation. First one is an anorectomanometry to make sure the sphincter is okay. If it's not, it gets treated. And more dramatically, to figure out if the colon is abnormal needs either a colonic manometry, and not all centers have access to colonic manometry, and a very good alternative to colonic manometry is a radionuclear study um, where you're looking to see if the colon has normal or abnormal motility. In particular, is it diffusely dysmodal or is it segmentally dysmodal? So, you know, this is a this, – you've touched on a big problem here because um... – so the the patients I'm seeing like they're, they're they they present with no GI symptoms or complaints. They're 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 most of them are defecating normally as far as anyone's concerned. But if you were to image them, then they would look like your worst anchorpretic patients, you know, in terms of the colon. And so when I 
I mean, I work with some great GI doctors, but when I send them for these evaluations, they don't, they're not treated aggressively because their GI complaints are not significant. And so I don't think there's many centers that provide what you're describing. Is that correct? Or, or am I not just sending them to the right people? They may, they may not provide colonic manometry, which is certain sophistication provided by motility experts, but you certainly have nuclear medicine because you can do renal scans, I'm yep, assuming. For sure, yes. So it's a very nice protocol. I'm happy to share it with you um, for uh, a nuclear medicine study of the colon. And basically it shows is the colon segmentally, well, the three things you want to know. Is the colon normal? Um, normal motility. Then a good option for that patient, in addition to rectal enemas, is an antigrade enema with a malone. Is the colon segmentally abnormal? So usually it's the stigmoid that's the problem and the rest of the colon's okay. Well, that's a patient that also might respond to enemas or antigrade with malone, but those are patients that sometimes need a stigmoid resection. And then the third, luckily quite rare, is the entire colon is dysmodal, doesn't move at all. And in those particular patients, they often need um, either an antigrade option like a Malone, or in certain circumstances, they need a, a, a significant colonic resection. The equivalent in an adult is they do a subtotal colectomy with an ileorectal. In kids, we do a right colon to rectum anastomosis, preserving the cecum so we can give antigrade flushes using a Malone. Wow, you know, I just... It seems like in the most, in the mo- most commonly, you know, this that no one's going this aggressively, and I think it's because the bladder symptoms are seen to be separate from the colon, and then therefore, the colon therapy is minimized, and that, that's what's been my struggle. In in the paper that I think it was last year where you were trying to find the most effective way to reduce the impaction, and you were doing I think three large volume enemas a day, and then if that failed, you were doing um, Miralax. Um, lavage and if that failed you're doing you know impact disimpaction in the operating room and then you're sending them home on xlax and all the and, and all this is it kind of a trial and error in terms of works what, what works best or have you seen certain therapies empty the rectum most effectively yeah what you're describing is if they're impacted yes um, so if they're impacted you need to go through that strategy but on a regular basis your choices are rectal daily rectal enema or daily uh, stimulant laxative, we prefer Senna, or antigrade enemas, i.e. Malone. I think that that's the thing where we're sticking is we're not getting them disimpacted to begin with, you know, because we're, we're not taking that step. We're not admitting them, and maybe I should. Maybe I should just admit these people or, or develop the program if, if I can get the, the, the help to just – if because we are diagnosed as the impaction, and then we're, and we're sending them home on some kind of regimen, and we're not checking with them until – you know, weeks later, and if they're not disimpacted, then we've made no progress. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, they have to be clean. They have to be, they have to be disimpacted before you really can do anything. You think that would be something that, you know, that, that is that approved by insurance to get covered for? If like I was admitting people, was that something that... Yeah. It, okay, great. They get disimpacted, yeah. And then... Um, the uh, the big the big the two big fears our all our parents have is chronic enema use right and chronic senna use and so I've seen you know via the parasteam pump which is primarily you know tap water or or via the large volume enema program that you've described with saline and uh, um, 
Castile soap or, or baby shampoo or glycerin or fleet that you can do this for quite a while with the only significant side effect being the fleet can cause colitis. Is, is that correct? Yeah, fleet or soap can cause colitis. How does that... Pre- usually saline or, um, or plus saline plus glycerin is our, is our standard. That's the safest for long term. How does the the colitis in these cases present typically with burning, with pain, or or physical exam findings? Pain, or they have blood when they pass stool. Um, uh, typically, that, that that that's what happens. And uh, if you do a contrast study in such a patient, you usually see a high push peristaltic, sort of a um, a, a very um, uh, hypertonic looking colon, like in spasm. Yeah, we if we have pain at all, then we we always abort because it's uh, too difficult to manage from home. So that that that's good to hear. And you know the 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 lot there's a bad a lot of misinformation on Senna out there as well that Senna could be habit forming or Senna can't be used for longer than six weeks due to liver toxicity. What's your experience with Senna usage? I strongly recommend you take a look at an article we wrote in the Journal of Pediatric Surgery about safety of Senna. Um, it's uh, we wrote that article out of desperation because we keep hearing this nonsense about Senna. Oh, that's great. Okay. And we did we did a we did a literature review, extensive literature review. There is nothing bad about Senna. Is this the one that mentioned the only complication was the rash primarily? Yes. Yes. And we also reviewed over 600 of our own patients who have been on Senna, and the main issue has been rash. And the rash is due to stool stool uh, con- uh, stool um, um, contact with uh, the skin. Yeah, like any diarrhea, of course. Yes. Really can't really can't blame the senna for that. Although there are some senna blisters, but basically um, there there has been what appears to be some reaction to the senna itself. Um, um, and uh, if you change the type of senna. Because usually it's not an allergy to the senna. It's usually an allergy to one of the additives that's added to the generic or the, uh, you know, whatever the brand of senna that they chose. But senna is an extremely safe medicine. And it is, it is a mystery to me why um, so many people try to avoid it. Yeah, you know, I... That's why we, that's why we, wrote, that's why we wrote the article. And um, you can find it very quickly if you just do a search for senna and my name. In yeah, I actually just reviewed it uh, for uh, for my. I, I posted it on our page because we get so many questions, and I really appreciate you writing that article. It was very timely. And you know, I've also spoken I'll with. Tell, the, I will tell you, for example, like in France, there's no Senna because they have this impression that it's unsafe. So uh, I have a colleague in Paris who is bringing that article in front of the uh, pharmaceutical board um, at the governmental level to tell them, "Hey guys, Senna's safe." Yeah, and I was speaking to Dr. Dom, you know, from New York, and he was saying that, you know, he gives kids huge doses just because the side effect of too much senna is just too much poop, and, and it's not toxic. And then once he gets the kids pooping, he can lower the dose. And so um, a couple of the concerns parents uh, that, you know, write me have are, you know, how do we get off of it? And then, like, well, I know people abuse laxatives for weight loss. How What's the difference? And I... I just try to paint them the picture of someone that actually needs the laxative, which is a child with a, a dilated colon versus someone that's healthy and normal. I don't know your thoughts on that. I don't really know what you mean. What, what's their specific question? They're saying, you know, um, 
can't, they, they're concerned they'll never be able to get off of it. Like the child, they're they're condemning their child to a lifelong uh, use of a of a, a stimulant to go to have a bowel movement. And the other is that hasn't been my experience, and the literature does not support that. Yes, because you re, basically you're, you're rehabilitating the colon uh, with the medicine. And then the other is, can you give too much? You know, there, there's there's people here of a eating disorder patients uh, abusing laxatives to lose weight and to and it's unhealthy and we you know we see uh, kidney stones in these patients uh, and there's a big difference between abusing laxatives to get diarrhea and lose water weight versus using it to provide a daily bowel movement in a child and that's what I try to stress. Yeah, I agree. So. In these kids, uh, I, I think I mean, I've learned a lot just talking to you here about um, getting um, this internal sphincter evaluated better, getting some better kind of reads on the anorectal manometry. But do you send most – it seemed on the – at least with the disimpaction paper that you send most home on a, on a Senna uh, program. Is that just because it's easier for the parents to manage? Well, I mean we, we like Senna. Um, we give them Senna plus a water-soluble fiber because if you give Senna alone, they tend to make um, loose stool, which they don't like, um, and the water-soluble fiber, something like um, uh, Nutrisource is a good option. That um, gives a little bit of bulk, um, makes the Senna more effective and makes them more tolerant of a more formed stool and be more able to handle because the stool is a little bit more formed. Um, and that's our that's our typical regimen. We these patients need a stimulant laxative. We essentially avoid all stool softeners, so no lactulose, no Miralax, no Movacol, um, no Colace, none of those things. Those are all useless for those these patients. All those things do is makes the stool soft. They don't help it come out. They need a stimulant laxative. And that's why the sometimes and and you know I mean you. You're saying this stuff because it's common knowledge to you, but we've both seen patients all over the country be given Miralax for encopresis and have their encopresis get worse in the long term. Oh, yeah. yeah. Terrible. It's basically one of my most common moves is I just stop that. I stop that medication as soon as I meet the patient that's been on it. And as I'm talking to you, you know, I, I've been moving. I, I was afraid of Senna, and I'm embarrassed to say, just because, you know, again, I'm a urologist. I'm not a GI doctor. But um, the, 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 there, if you look it up, there, there are papers saying bad things about it. So I'm glad that we – because Senna find, – find, find them. Send them to me. Oh. If, you look at, if you look at the article we just wrote, yeah. there are no such papers. We looked very, very carefully. There are – it's like fake news. It's like fake news. And so then I've had these patients on Miralax because I was trying to at least kind of keep the bowel movement soft and restore normal sensation. And I think if I if I could place these patients on Senna maybe with with enemas in, in severe cases. Well, number one, I'm thinking a lot of things here out loud. But one is that I need to maybe just be more aggressive with initial disimpaction. And then I can pick whatever works best when they're at home. Yep, I think that's a good idea. But I would choose either Senna plus water-soluble fiber or Emelis. I wouldn't combine the two. Excellent. And this this Botox approach, you're, you're doing this in the OR? Or are, the, are, the, are the general surgeon doing this or the GI doctors? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, 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 I do it. GI does it. We give 100 units of Botox mixed in with uh, one cc of saline. 
and inject it into the directly into the anal canal. Yeah, I do 100 units in the bladder. That's interesting. That's amazing. I think um, if I was going to send people, I think it would help a lot of a lot of your patients actually. And you haven't had. Wor- I, would, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it empirically. I would. I would do it with an anorectal manometry. And so you, what you're looking for is this um, internal sphincter echolasia, uh, and then the external sphincter is obviously treated by biofeedback physical therapy, and then the. Um, but, but the ex- but the external sphincter also is also is improved with Botox. So you need to uh, have, you need to look at that as well. Yeah, I've always uh, read about that and discussed it with patients, but never. Uh, broached it just because it's out of my expertise but i think i i definitely i'm you know early on in my kind of work with this it was easy i was getting kids and i would just give them miralex and they'd get empty and then i you know as i get expand over the country everyone i'm getting these kids that even daily enemas don't help and so what you're describing is basically what we need i have had a couple of kids though go see and i i don't know what the disconnect is here and and I don't know. I mean, I don't think anybody's right or wrong. I just think maybe it's not a, it's not a, it's not a common ground. Is that when I have sent uh, patients with what I feel is, uh, um, you know, rectal dilation. So like, let's say they have what O'Regan called delayed sensation to balloon encephalation on anorectal manometry, which was what is what's tied to you know urinary incontinence in our field. That they're always, I mean, seen as maybe not very severe cases and kind of sent home on. A less aggressive program when they see motility experts. Is that does that make sense to you, or is that or is it, are, are we both misreading what's going on? Mm, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. No. Because if they had delayed encephalation on anorectomometry, then they should they should be treated, correct? Yeah, I mean that's what the anorectomometry is for is to find something about the anal sphincter that uh, needs treatment, and the treatments are either. Or this is also, though, there's a separate component of it that's evaluating the actual rectal sensation, correct? Uh, yes. Yeah. And so that's the part that I, I don't know why it's maybe under undertreated in that perspective. Or, you know, or they'll say they have some um, external sphincter dyssinergia and they'll send them to therapy, physical therapy. And then there's when they see the physical therapist, they are able to relax their sphincter, but the rectum is not treated, so they never get better. Does that make sense? someone that can both treat the rectum and treat or at least figure out what treatment is needed by the sphincter. So our routine would be if the sphincter is abnormal, give them their Botox and then soon thereafter hit them with their laxative regimen. So you take advantage of the fact that the Botox is now kicking in and the sphincters are no longer going to hold back the ability of the colon to empty. This is great stuff, and you know, I try to take a stepwise kind of conservative approach, but I'm thinking here I just need to go all in and get them, get their, just the rectum disimpacted, the sphincter treated all right away, and then we'll get much quicker resolution of the bowel and bladder symptoms. I think, I think that's a good way of, of saying it. What centers, other than your centers, are doing this kind of work in America? Are there too, number, too many to, to, to enumerate, or are, they, are there few? Yeah, no, there are there are a number of places that have, um, you know, um, busy colorectal surgical services collaborating with uh, GI motility. Yeah, so I don't, I think you know, PGI and GI motility is something that certainly exists 
not all, not every GI place has colonic manometry, which is the most sophisticated way to evaluate the colon's motility. But um, they certainly have radionuclear studies, and they certainly have you know people who can treat the patient medically. It tied, tied, that, that reminds me of the paper that you guys wrote on the getting things moving, you know, the GI paper that talked about colonic manometry, which is a little bit above my head. But uh, you also mentioned that, you know, the new medications. Are you using any of the chloride channel medications or any of the new medications in children or, or not? Our, our, gas, our gastroenterologists are, which is why we collaborate with them. We see many of these patients jointly. I need to get a better uh, group. You know, we have I, I, we have a good GI group at Wake, but we don't have a motility center, so to speak. Um, that is in Charlotte, and I think that's been kind of the dilemma. And the other closest one is Atlanta. Just get yourself a, a interested gastroenterologist. Make sure you guys can do nuclear medicine studies of the colon to um, assess the colonic uh, motility, um, and then figure out who can give the patient anal Botox, yourself or the gastroenterologist. And, you know, if anyone needs some additional training or knowledge in that area, then pick a center. We would be most happy to have someone visit us, spend some time with us, spend some time with the GI motility folks, um, and then uh, uh, sort of gain that experience. Yeah, you know, that's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna come, I've am gonna. been talking about it for about it. I need to come up there because I need to – I'm just thinking of these kids that are impacted that never got impacted, and I feel awful about it because it's just a waste of time. It's a wait, And the parents are struggling. You know, they're giving these enemas or whatever, and if they're not making progress, then it's just a waste of time. So uh, I just need to be more aggressive with my, my initial disimpaction, my initial diagnosis. Oh, that brings up another question. Can you have a falsely negative – delayed balloon encephalation sensation like for example if you do an anorectal manometry in a kid that's impacted won't you have a bad study um yes they need to be cleaned out first so you need to document they're empty yeah okay so plain x-ray does that pardon me and a plain abdominal x-ray would do that okay then that's okay because you don't you don't have a contrast enema necessarily you can do a plain kub a plain KUB is perfectly fine. And what what is the I know you use a lot of contrast enemas. What's the additional anatomic findings that are useful from that? Yeah, so a contrast study you want to see how dilated the rectus sigmoid or the rest of the colon is, most importantly, and then I that's that's one fact. And I also like to see how redundant is the sigmoid. Yeah, I've seen, and I think we discussed this in, in an email before, where sometimes the the rectus sigmoid just gets elongated upwards, uh, like cephalad, and sometimes it becomes just more dilated uh, in the caudal fashion. Is that, does that mean anything in terms of function? Uh, no, I think the wide, the width, and the redundancy. And they both influence motility, obviously. We don't know exactly what that influence is, but um, those, are impact, those are impactful, no pun intended, um, uh, findings that I say, wait a minute, this colon might be a little bit more difficult uh, to empty than another one who doesn't have those. Like you know, we've talked about it before, and I know I know Seth Alpert up there at, at Nationwide, and you have a good, great urologist up there. But have we, have you ever had someone say, and this is what I run into. Let's say I said, you know, I want to take just a bedwetter, right, like a seven-year-old bedwetter that has retrodilation, which I can prove on X-ray, 
and I want to treat him like you would treat your worst, you know, colon patient, like with with uh, disimpaction and then anorectomanometry and possible Botox. Uh, is that was that is that something that would be doable in terms of would you be would we get pushback from that if their only symptom was bedwetting? Yeah, and then they're just getting meds and they're wasting time and they're spending... This is great. Okay, this is really awesome. I think I have a good plan in my head. Every time I talk to you, I have to, like, edit my books. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to write this stuff together, how about Yeah, we, we do. I need to... Or I just need to have you write it. So, uh, is there anything that I think that maybe, as we're talking, that I, meant, I, I did not mention that you think is important for these patients? No, I think you've got a good... Uh, you've got a good... Um, uh, good analysis, and I would, you know, welcome more collaboration. And I think uh, you, you really need to come up for a visit, particularly if you could come on a Wednesday, which ha is our collaborative meeting. Uh, Thursday is our clinic, and then you might like Friday morning, where we uh, meet every week with our GI motility colleagues to discuss all our difficult patients. I'm I'm coming up. I'm going to plan this. We're going to cure a bedwetting. We'll be we'll be famous. All right, great. Okay, I really, really, really appreciate it. You have no idea. You're like a hero of mine. This is amazing. I know you're very busy. You're a brilliant man, and um, I appreciate your time. I, I appreciate you uh, you inviting me. Let's uh, let's do it again soon. All right, buddy. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Talk to you. Bye bye. Bye.